0: Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast hosted by Collegium student fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here, we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived.
1: Thank you for joining us on The Wheel, a podcast where we explore the quintessential things through conversation. This podcast is brought to you by the Collegium Institute, a small Catholic or small C Catholic community promoting the intellectual life at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Lewis Galerowitz, and I'm a senior at Penn studying philosophy and history. I work as a fellow for the Program for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society. Today, I'll be talking with professors David De- or David Devil and professors or Professor Jessica Hutton Wilson. About the subject of their recent book, Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul and the West. Jessica Hutton Wilson is Louise Cowan Scholar. Um, um, sorry, a correction there. Hutton Hew- Hew- Wilson <laughs> um, is Louise Cowan Scholar and residence at the University of Dallas in Classical Education and Humanities Graduate Program. She is the author of three books. Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received the 2018 Christianity Today Book Award, um, Walker Percy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the Search for Influence, and Reading Walker-Polk Percy's Novels. In 2019, she received the Height Prize for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. She is the co-editor of the volume Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, the Russian the West, which we will be reviewing today. Um, and she's currently preparing Flannery O'Connor's unfinished novel, Why Do the Heathens Rage, for publication. Dr. David Devil was born and raised in Bremen, Indiana. He is currently editor of Logos, Logos a journal for Catholic thought and culture, co-director of the Terence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Law, uh, thought, law, and public policy, and a visiting assistant professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota where he has taught cap- uh, courses on Catholic literature, spirituality, theology, and culture. He is a featured ri- writer for the Imaginative Conservative, which I subscribe to, actually. Very nice. Um, and, and associate editor of the Vogelin uh, Vogel- View, a contributing editor for Gilbert, an editorial board member for the Newman Studies Journal, and a former vice president of the Newman Association of America. His academic work has appeared in several books, as well as a number of journals, including the Chesterton Review, uh, Chicago Studies, Faith and Reason, Journal of Markets and Morality, New Blackfriars, Nova et Vetera, and Society, and he lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, with his wife, Catherine, and their seven children. Dr. David, uh, or Dr. Dievel, and Dr. Wilson, thank you for joining us.
2: Yes, absolutely. David is so impressive. I loved listening to that.
3: Yeah. I like it. Where did you find that? That's, <laughs> that's great stuff. I think it was, I think it was from your LinkedIn in all honesty. Oh, LinkedIn,
2: yeah. <laughs> I, I think
1: I shortened it as well. <laughs> oh,
3: good. Yeah.
1: And the Vogelin. So you must know as well, the Corey's um, Dr. David Corey. Oh,
2: yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And Elizabeth. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. She's on the board of, of Vogelin view, I believe with me as or I'm not on the board. I'm an editor, but uh, I, she works for it. either as an editor or a, a board member, I can't remember which.
2: Yeah, and Lee Trepanier, who's amazing.
3: Yeah, so. he's in our book. So he's the editor of Vogel and View.
1: Okay, very nice. Um, all right, so to start us off, um, we'll move on to questions. Would you mind walking us through your decision to publish this collection of essays? Um, and what was your intention for the project? And why now? Why uh, 2021?
2: Well, real quick, just because we mentioned the Corey's, actually, it was David Corey when I was in grad school who said that I should be connected with intercollegiate studies Institute and recommended that I assign the Solzhenitsyn reader, which had just come out uh, by Ed Erickson and Dan Mahoney and said that we should like have a book club and then invite Ed to come give a talk. So, I mean, that was 2006, maybe 2007. Um, And that's kind of like the really early domino for the Genesis for where we are now with, with this book. But David, do you want to talk a little bit more about the? the current? Yeah, for me, it kind of goes back
3: even further. Uh, I I studied with Ed Erickson, the co-editor of the Social Needs and Reader, in at Calvin College, now Calvin University, and uh, he was he became a mentor and and lifelong friend uh, until his passing in 2017. And it was at that point that uh, Jessica and I were were kind of messaging back and forth about about the loss of Ed Erickson, and we kind of said, well, why don't we do something for him? So Jessica called me up one afternoon and said, you know, I think we should do a book of some sort. And I said, that's a great idea. And we tossed around a number of ideas that would honor Ed, and we came up with the idea that something that would honor him would be to continue his project of introducing Americans, uh, particularly to the Russian tradition and especially. And so we drew up some plans and uh, we came up with an idea of Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, which we pitched to the University of Notre Dame Press, which thankfully had a a Center for Ethics and Culture Solzhenitsyn series. They were very excited about it and we got it going. And in about three years later, uh, we produced what I think is a very good volume that honors Ed Solzhenitsyn and the great Russian tradition.
2: Yeah. I think that, you know, I, it was David Remnick maybe the New Yorker editor who, you know, decade or two ago said, no writer has defined the 20th century like Solzhenitsyn. I mean, he actually affected it. He may be, you know, his work can be credited for taking down an empire. So we have this legacy that looms over the 20th century, but then we just forgot him. I mean, we, we ignore him and it's to our detriment because it's, It's history repeating itself in our current cultural moment because we're so all unaware of what happened and what he lived through and the prophecies that he was speaking. So it it kind of, it was a providential thing that Ed brought us together, but now getting to see Solzhenitsyn and his uh, looming influence or the need for his influence in this current cultural moment um, just feels very providential, like something bigger than us was, was happening. I
3: might point out that as Flannery O'Connor said, she was an armchair Thomist. We were kind of armchair Solzhenitsyn people, and now we've, you know, it, to to do the book, we've gotten much more into the Solzhenitsyn. I've begun publishing and speaking on him, and that's that's been an incredible personal, professional, and indeed, in a way, spiritual blessing.
2: I agree.
1: And you're you're taking the questions right out of my mouth here. <laughs> um, to so. Um, Professor Wilson, you got off on the note of, uh, you quote Mary Martin or Marty Martin as saying, Americans must read Solzhenitsyn as a prophet, not as a critic or a politician, so that we may understand his long-lasting vision. So what is what is this long-lasting vision that Solzhenitsyn imparts? Um, yes.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I think the greatest writers are prophetic. And by that, I don't mean um, necessarily just the Old Testament sense of like you say a prophecy and then it comes through in the Messiah. More in the sense of you are so aware of the past and how it has affected where you currently are, that you are going to write something that is so true, it will speak to the future after you're gone. And currently we don't have a lot of profits because we have a lot of people who are more concerned about being relevant and writing to the relevance, but it's made them myopic. I mean, it's made them unable to see past certain boundaries of time. They're um, what... Alan Jacobs calls the fallacy of presentism. They're so wrapped up in the present, they're only able to speak to it. Solzhenitsyn was not like that. Uh, as a writer, instead he looked he looked backwards. He saw, you know, he read Dostoevsky, he read Tolstoy. He knew the the legacy of those writers. He knew. Um, the importance of their vision, and he also understood how it would speak to his time and after, and especially if we weren't careful to heed it, if we didn't listen. So I would say the main impetus of his vision is the idea that men have forgotten God, to summarize it, right? That's why all this is happening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? For him, men have forgotten God. That, If you want to know what's happening in the world, that's what he means. And by that, he doesn't mean something just – spiritual, religious, like we just need morality. He means you are going to die. And if you do not know what happens after death, you're going to make different kinds of decisions here. You're going to create a utopia here because this is all there is. You're going to set yourself up as your own personal God, because there is no other God. You can treat all other human beings, either as competing gods or as objects to be taken out. And if you have that kind of perspective, then look what happens in the totalitarian takeover of Russia, right? Um, people set themselves up as competing gods. They destroy other people as objects. They try to set up their own utopia. And so that's his long lasting vision is he's warning us not to fall into the same traps uh, that, that the Russian people allowed over there.
1: I think uh, a, a common video everyone's watched is the David Foster Wallace like Harvard address where he says everyone has God um, whether it's you money uh, yourself or you know your family um, so I think that's somewhat uh somewhat similar but I, th- I think I definitely prefer the 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 Solzhenitsyn quote
3: um,
1: so a question for uh, professor Dievel, since the 1983 Templeton address uh, Solzhenitsyn has been labeled kind of anti-western or anti-american um, so what aspects of the West did he admire and which did he criticize? And and kind of he's been written off based on the, this kind of last legacy he gave to the West. So like what how is the West perception of Solzhenitsyn getting to change? Uh, is that kind of why this book was written there?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, in certain ways, the West perception of Solzhenitsyn after after the initial push, when he got the Nobel Prize, he first revealed the problems with the gulag and that was fine with the west because uh you know we were fine with uh uh correcting other people's mistakes but when he started to speak out in the west more broadly and was more critical of of american and european and other tendencies that's when the the love affair kind of broke off he was exiled of course um after the nobel prize uh, was awarded to him and he uh He ended up living in the United States for about 20 years, and he spent part of the first years speaking out to people at a number of public lectures. And of course, the Harvard address that he gave is the most famous one, a world split apart. But he was quite blunt, and he did not propose himself as an enemy, but instead as a real friend who wasn't afraid to speak bitter truths. And unfortunately, uh, many people did not like that, Uh, but he was criticizing some of the same tendencies that... uh, Jessica was just talking about uh, in terms of creating our own little gods and uh, avoiding the big questions about the meaning of life and what happens afterwards and that what that has to do with the inside and so there was a big there was a big uh, push to sort of label him as a kind of a, a monarchist or a theocrat somebody who wanted to sort of put the patriarch of Moscow in charge of everything all of it was based upon Generally speaking, lies or misinterpretations, and it was done on a kind of bipartisan basis. Um, although Ronald Reagan was a great fan of Solzhenitsyn's and quoted him publicly, some people who worked for him, such as the Russianist Richard Pipes, um, you know you know basically promoted some of these false ideas and I think that they've stuck to some degree, and that's why we're really glad to bring out another book that introduces him yet again to the West without all of the baggage that, that came before. And
1: how does, so how does his, his concepts of, and his criticisms of our, our idea of life, liberty, and property, uh, or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, particularly happiness, how does that reflect like a, a distinctly Russian or orthodox perspective?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, I think that uh, perhaps it's in the, the bluntness with which he talks about it. Um, you know, he he would often proclaim that happiness was not the goal. Um, and it really focused much more uh, when he would talk about happiness on what he would call spiritual growth and spiritual growth. And that's something that you can't get apart from suffering. Um now, I don't think he would think that the founding fathers were were against this. And in fact, he thought of them and spoke of them very clearly as in the broader uh, Western and Christian tradition. Uh, of thinking about both life and government and 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 all of the topics associated with it, but he was aware that uh, you know our our country was founded during the Enlightenment time, and certain aspects of that forgetting God in the secularism that was of the day perhaps had something that that would follow through, even if our stated documents uh, did you know really did uh, promote and assume a belief in God and natural law and all of that.
2: Yeah. As far as Solzhenitsyn was concerned, our uh, wealth was actually making us spiritually poor in America. And what he was criticizing is how much emphasis we had placed on consumerism to make us happy. Right. Whereas the Russians, you know, Dostoevsky is known. Sometimes people say that he's like a, a masochist. Well, he's not, but he knows that suffering is a part of reality you can't get rid of it. So you have to then understand how you're going to deal with it if you can't get rid of it. And the idea for the communists to try to get rid of of suffering just ended up meaning that some people got rid of other people, you know, because you can't actually eradicate that problem. So Solzhenitsyn was fond of saying like Russians know how to suffer and Americans don't know how to suffer, right? We don't know the instrumental good that can happen through suffering and Solzhenitsyn did.
3: Yeah, connected to that is his his diagnosis of our problem, particularly in America and Britain as well, as as a kind of legalism uh, that sort of set up the goals for for uh, human flourishing really only within the goalposts of of legal legal boundaries and avoided the question of duties and of going beyond legal boundaries to doing the right thing, and that's. But, of course, that makes sense because it's when you go beyond your simple legal duties and limits that you often encounter suffering. I think it was Hegel who said, uh, only the English desire happiness. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But and I I think that's uh, also I think another another thread in Dostoevsky has been that freedom is also simply an instrument. Um, and too often, I think we we lose that. We see freedom as the end uh, in American society. Um, I, one quote I'm taking from the the William Jason Wallace passage was, uh, the free man shorn of spiritual accountability is struck with freedom as an end in itself. Solzhenitsyn urges that the root of freedom is ultimately not political, social, or even cultural. It is spiritual. Yeah.
2: And that I, I mean, Jason's point there is great. It is not just about license. Like, I am free to do whatever it is that I want. For Solzhenitsyn, freedom being understood as uh, following the will of God. I mean, it's almost, and it sounds like Miltonic, right? Like, to be free is to go with God, to do God's will. Every other form of freedom ends up being enslavement. And that's what we see in Dostoevsky, too, is that other forms of freedom are not actually being free.
3: Yeah. I think I put it in my essay, a quote from him about the, the tellus of freedom is. Is heroism. And that's what he thought we missed, uh, is that freedom has an end in heroic activity. And of course, that also connects to the suffering we're talking about. Uh, but we, we would rather sort of be mediocre, uh, you know, live our own happy lives within the boundaries of success and goods and experiences. And for him, that was, that was a, a great betrayal of what freedom really is.
2: Yeah, you know you can. Well, it's so weird for somebody to talk about freedom who spent seven years in prison, right? I mean, but so he actually knows what it is. He's not just sitting in a classroom theorizing about what is freedom and what how, what's its nature. He's like, okay, I'm a prisoner. What does it mean to be free when I'm a prisoner, right? And so he he says, "Bless you, prison," because the prison taught him what freedom actually meant when his earthly self was confined. Right. He was able to still be heroic to have dignity, to be a good person within prison walls, and that's true freedom
3: in the chapter think- title is uh, first first cell first love when he uh, when he first enters in the gulag archipelago, and it's sort of striking, but that's you know he's describing exactly what Jessica's talking about
1: yeah. and do you think that's brought out in the the Baptist cult, uh, character in the the life of denisovich? Alive? I'm just forgetting his name, but
2: Alyosha. It's it's based on Dostoevsky. The only reason I always remember so Alexei Alyosha is the it's the brothers Karamazov character, the mm-hmm. good, the good little Christian character. Um, but yes, I mean that that's that's the idea there with um, Ivan Denisovich. This idea of like how do you how do you live a full life in prison?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ivan says to Alyosha, "Well, you're happy. You do this for for the Lord. You know, all of this has a meaning for you. But what about me?" And of course the genius of Solzhenitsyn's construction there is that Yvonne um, ends the day almost happy but not quite well why because he does not have he doesn't quite have the, the picture of meaning and of what this suffering is all about but of course that's why he's relatable because most of us, even if we teach this stuff, are in the same place
0: and
1: I think one of, one of the one of the essays talked about uh, Aloisha as having a, a certain I think Naive like Tolstoyanism. Um, just could you talk about what is Tolstoyanism coming from an American context? I, I don't think we have a sense of it. It seems like an idealism or, or some kind of like yeah, just uh, neglective of, of a, re, a Christian reality or something.
2: Sure, I mean I can talk on Tolstoy, but David, which essay was that? Your essay? I um, I'm trying to remember
3: if I quoted anybody. I mean, because I would not call Alyosha Tolstoyan, except insofar okay. so far as he, I mean, he's a kind of radical Christian, but of a, of a, he's a Baptist. Yeah, maybe uh, which is, a yeah I mean, he, he, he's radical in the sense that he'll basically put up with anything. Uh, you know, Yvonne says, well, water, you know, suffering rolls off of Alyosha like water off a duck's back. And the reason is because Alyosha doesn't really doesn't really care about any of this. Mm-hmm. He just merely wants to continue to serve the Lord. Uh, But, you know, that I mean, that's like the Tolstoyans, but but better because it's centered on on Jesus, the suffering servant.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think that's where I wouldn't call Alyosha. But we don't agree with every single essay in the book. That's actually one of the brilliant things that we did. I mean, not to give us credit, but just like we Mm -hmm. opened it up. We did not control what people wrote on. We just said. Let's let's make this book a giant dialogue with all these different voices, and so you have, poli- you know, political thi- scientists in here. You have historians, you have theologians, um, and all sorts of different backgrounds coming together. But as far as the Tolstoyan idea, just to define define it for readers, I mean, Tolstoy uplifts the peasant as kind of this pure spirit, but in a sense, he's he's missing the humanity of the peasant. <laughs> like he just kind of imagines that the peasant because of his suffering uh, is therefore closer to God because he doesn't complain and he knows his life is, is meaningless. And it's like, it's actually a kind of condescending view of uh, <laughs> at their, at their point, the, the peasants would have been aligned with what we had as slaves. Cause they, you know, the Russians got rid of slavery at the exact same time that we did 63 and 61. And so um, yeah, it's not really a strong view of God the way I think alyosha's vision of God is is actually strong in the text it's more Russian Orthodox even though it's called Baptist in the text yeah
3: but I mean that's you know that's the genius of Solzhenitsyn too and I think that's what made it fun to put together all these different voices because we have Protestants Catholics Orthodox some people probably you know kind of nominally so but uh, but they all can see truth in him because his work is quite often polyphonic it has different voices colliding and He's not afraid to put the best lines in the, the mouths of people who aren't just like him.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Jews, uh, isn't Nielsen is, um, is he Mormon? <laughs> he lives yeah, in Yeah, I New think York. he might I be. Assume that. <laughs> yeah. It is very mixed. We have a mixed bag here, and that is on purpose. We want to start a dialogue. We don't want to end one. We don't want to yeah. choose a side in the text.
3: We didn't check religious ideas when we asked people so.
2: <laughs> or politics or political or ideas. politics
3: or anything like that we have some people who are you know somewhat on the left i would say but
2: mm-hmm. but yeah, they but right.
3: they all saw in this a lot of a lot of good and, and and i think it makes it a rich rich collection yeah
2: that was yeah that was the goal
0: now
1: in that in that uh pronouncement on the tolstoyans i i sensed a bit of Dostoevsky. so could you trace kind of the uh the, the influence of Dostoevsky on Solzhenitsyn in terms of the orthodoxy and yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, no, those are, they're, they're radically different. Now at the same time, Tolstoy loved Dostoevsky and right when he goes to travel and die alone, which is a very unchristian thing to do, by the way. And Dostoevsky would never do that. Dostoevsky actually called all of his children to his bedside and like reminded them the story of the prodigal son and like they read the Bible together. And like, that's a very Christian end of life scene. Tolstoy's like, I'm going to run away and die by myself uh, and I'm going to bring brothers Karamazov with me. So they're, they're radically different. Dostoevsky's very embodied, very communal, um, non-hierarchical. Uh, he believes in authority. He believes in church doctrine. I mean, just all of that. Whereas Tolstoy is, if I was alone on a planet, how would I create a religion? And this is what I'm going to do. And uh, so his, his faith is just very ethereal Um, it's, it's whatever fits in his bag, so to speak. And, um, I mean, that would be a longer conversation, (laughs) but I would say just read George Steiner, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, you'll get a good sense of the division between them better than I could do in a few minutes.
1: I I think at the core is a, is a view of human nature, a difference in the view of human nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, there's this wonderful quote from the Joseph Pierce essay where he kind of paraphrases Chesterton. He says, man is always in stasis. He is best understood in relation to every man, the archetype for his perennial unchanging self as observed through history and through the literature of the ages. The answer to the fallacy of man and Superman was the felicity of the man and every man. Um, and I, I, he takes that to be, um Solzhenitsyn's kind of orthodox view do you do you think that's the case or do you think he differs from to to cuz to equate like Chesterton's orthodoxy with Solzhenitsyn I think is I'm just kind of wondering about that does that translate
3: oh i think that, i think it i mean there're definitely there's definitely a more of a russian orthodox accent in solzhenitsyn but he was a great great lover of chesterton in fact joseph pierce uh, you know was a biographer of chesterton before he was a biographer of solzhenitsyn And the way in which he got interviews with Solzhenitsyn was by saying, hey, I wrote a book on Chesterton. And when he arrived uh, at the Solzhenitsyn residence, he saw a line of Chesterton books. And uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, I think both of them, too, emphasized the human scale of things in terms of economy and society. Um, Not that there's not power in sort of nationhood and things like that, but both of them sort of had a similar take on that as well. And I think I think they're actually much more similar than, than different in many ways. But.
2: Yeah, I, and I would say, you know, um, there's actually been some pushback against our book because we it looks like we conflated orthodoxy and Catholicism and Protestantism. I, I just don't think that's fair. I think at the heart, Christianity, when it's being practiced as little O orthodox, has a lot in common between all three different branches. And even when you look at, the human vision and things like in the early church, Augustine, et cetera, um, all the way to Dante, they have a lot in common for like a thousand years. I mean, really maybe things get separated more post enlightenment than anything that happens in that first 2000 year branch. And the Russian Orthodox church is just the church as it, as it maintained its way um, and didn't veer from anything from the past. So Catholics and a lot of their medieval ideas are very similar to the Orthodox. Uh, Protestants who are attracted to the medieval vision, like O'Connor was and like Percy was, are very similar to the Orthodox. There's just so much, I think, at the heart of these faiths that uh, that they share, that it, that's where their artistic visions are going to stem from, rather than kind of the superficial or the ecclesial practices that may look different.
3: Yeah, and Solzhenitsyn did not ever claim to be a kind of theologian or church historian. And he very rarely sort of went directly in a theological route. Um, in his in his memoirs of his time in the West, between two millstones, he talks about the worry he had when he was told that he had won the Templeton Prize or, you know, the Templeton Foundation on religion, because he said, you know, I don't do this very rare, you know, I, I very rarely speak on religious matters in sort of a direct fashion. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be seen as just simply a sort of Russian Orthodox exponent or anything like that. Uh, but he also felt the need to speak very directly, and that's where you get the, uh, you know, those famous lines about men have forgotten God and the much more direct speech. But it's not, it's not on topics that would divide Catholic, Orthodox, Protestants. Um, in many ways, his 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 uh, reflections on uh providence for instance in the oak and the calf the first memoir that he did are incredibly profound and they would be recognized by any christian of of any any sort of small o orthodoxy and so what is it what is this view of providence in that um for people well it's very personal i mean he he feels that uh he i mean he he goes through the same sort of phases in which it's very difficult to understand how he's going to make it, whether he's going to be killed by the KGB or be put back into a camp. But uh, he really believed that God had a plan for him and was leading him, even despite his own mistakes, uh, to be able to do the projects that he wanted to, namely uh, to tell the story of all those who were forgotten in the gulag. And then of course, the big project of his life uh, in the red wheel to tell the story of what happened to Russia from 19, 1915 to
1: nineteen twenty two, say. So do you do you think the the red re- wheel was his um his demons kind of mm-hmm. tracing the <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're different in that sense. He almost is more Tolstoyan in the way he's treating history. So not theology. I don't think he lines up with Tolstoy theologically, but he does line up with him and his artistic vision, his way of encountering history through art. And so this, you know, a much larger scale, even than war and peace, the red wheel is trying to take on and, and understand um, the war. <laughs> I mean, really, it was a war for Russia's soul. That was taking place for him, that he's trying to document. Thank
1: hmm. hmm. <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, so, and I, we touched we touched on the the kind of postmodern. So, like Dostoevsky said, we Russians have two fatherlands: Russia and Europe. Um, and much of the West shares this heritage of kind of modernity and pre-modernity. The kind of um, Weber uses the terms like disenchantment, enchantment. Um, and here I'm also pulling on like Charles Taylor. Um, so how, how does Solzhen, uh, Solzhenitsyn or Dostoevsky speak to how we might navigate these two legacies?
2: <laughs> That's a big one. That, I mean, it's, it is somewhat what I was talking about, this connection between our medieval identity. What, what gets lost is that enchanted vision of the world. Uh, the idea that the things you're doing here matter forever rather than they just matter to you. And you're responsible only for yourself. So the the division is really between what David's been talking about this heroism of responsibility within a community, rather than self improvement, autonomy, right? Um, only looking out for one's own goods, and and that's difficult for Americans because so much of our identity as a nation began with some of those hangups from the enlightenment that we need to protect the individual self so much right and um, we've we've kind of lost that that sense of a larger purpose and i think the russians get us back in touch with that right Um, not only through warning us because of what happened in commun with the communist takeover but also some beautiful visions of hope that's one of the great things about solzhenitsyn he's not really someone you can summarize He's someone you have to experience his books. He wanted them to be cathartic, really to kind of cleanse you from those modern hangups and those spiritual demons that, that you may be wrestling with. And he can't, you can't do that just by quoting his speeches and summarizing his text. Like you really have to put yourself through the gulag. You have to put yourself through in the first circle. And those experiences themselves will, will kind of remove that modern sensibility. Um, the way that Chesterton would talk about the modern, right, the disenchanted self.
3: Yeah, and it's not that he would come to radically different conclusions. Uh, you know, from the American experiment per se, uh, he defended things like property and, and liberty, uh, but he wanted them to be rightly understood. And unless you have this broader vision of what the self is for and, and to whom it is responsible, you know, that it's under God, he thought that you were going to naturally lose. Uh, the goods that were, that were apparent in a society with life and liberty and, and, and property and, and perhaps even the pursuit of happiness.
2: Yeah, the Russians have this idea of sobornost. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea. And um, so it's just, it's a different idea of the communal well-being that's not as popular, except within church communities where it should be popular. Um, whereas to watch out for someone else's good is in a sense, watching out for your good. Like you are so connected with the people around you, um, that you should be watching out for other people.
1: I think Robert Putnam used the phrase like eyes on the street, um, in social capital, um, which is something similar, but much less spiritually or me- meaningful in any way than subordinates of course. Yeah. Um, so I, I like, do, do you see like, what, what I to to maybe summarize some of the sentiments is uh, the the way out of America's like expressive individualism is reclaiming the the telos of freedom as heroism
2: Ooh, um, that's a good that's a good thesis <laughs> yeah. I like that well and I think I think Nathan nielsen is the one who talks about sobornos in our book and really draws out you know these universal connections between social needs and work and not just America not just the west but just universal like what is What's universal in his fiction? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, his essay, the essays at the beginning of the book, Nathan's and uh, Eugene Vodoloshkin's are both very good about sort of drawing out what we need to learn again uh, and how postmodernity is is kind of a disaster in one sense, but it's an opportunity to return to older habits of thought and writing and being uh, that... Previous ages had that that, that we've lost.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Vodalashkin is one of my current favorite writers. So the fact that he's in here is amazing. Um, but after people read Solzhenitsyn, then they should read Loris, which is his uh, masterpiece novel.
1: So you're, you're providing me with a reading list for going forward. This is wonderful. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I have a habit of doing that.
1: <laughs> um, so, and to give to uh for for professor wilson um there's this idea of imagining demons in human society um and so kind of what what are like the social demons or i mean uh carl truman uses the term like social pathologies um you think uh solzhenitsyn sees within to 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 give the devil his due
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pathologies is too safe of a word. It sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like a distant uh, diagnosis. It, when you really think about it as demons, whether you believe in that or not, some part of you gets scared. <laughs> it just does. And I think you need to get scared. So one of the things I love about Dostoevsky's work is that he He's not afraid to bring these spiritual realities to the surface of things. And um, and Solzhenitsyn doesn't do that as much as Dostoevsky, right? Like these spiritual realities coming, coming to play. He's much more about the moral realities and the effects they have. But you do see uh, kind of the contagious effect of sin within these Russian writers in which even the small things that you do can either contribute to the growing of evil or it can waylay it, right? Like it can put um, an end to it and increase the good. So every, every time I think that you pay attention to your phone more than you pay attention to your kids, right? Like I think every time that you are hateful and mean online, as though those people aren't people, you're contributing something that is growing and feeding on it and getting bigger. So in our current culture, we have a habit of thinking, that one little act is an isolated sin or an isolated act. And the way the Orthodox imagination works is that it's not isolated. It's, it's like contributing to a sickness, right? It's um, allowing the spread of a disease and darkness, right? Uh, stranger things like the darkness increases, the more power you give it. So we have to be careful not to just see ourselves as like, am I getting better myself um, but more how much am I contributing to the evil around me and allowing it more power than it should have.
3: What a lot of people don't know about Solzhenitsyn was that personally speaking, he he was actually, I mean, well, I mean, his wife in many ways was doing a lot of the work for it. But when he was able to move to the West and actually benefit from, benefit from the sales to his writings uh, and the, the award money, what he did with it was he set up um, charity funds Help those who were still abroad in Russia. Of course, that involved a lot of a lot of work, and he helped not only people there but also uh, emigres in the United States and Canada. Many of whom would show up at his house in Vermont. Some of whom were clearly crazy, mm-hmm. uh, but many of whom needed help. And and despite his you know own sort of hard nut approach to you know he had, was doing his work as a writer. Nevertheless, uh, he often broke broke his day and and dealt with some of these people and gave them money and helped them find connections and did a lot of things. So, you know, personally speaking, you know, I've I've benefited from knowing much more about him as the man and not just the writer, uh, because he really did also live out this this way of thinking and didn't just sort of write about it or allude to it.
2: Yeah, Mark Edmondson, a professor at University of Virginia, wrote this book, uh, Why Read?, And it's really great because he says the test of a great book is to ask the question, can I live this? And whenever you have a writer who actually lives the books that they write, that is someone to hold on to because not only is it a book worth living, but you get to see the life itself of the author as a testimony. And so David's right. Like Solzhenitsyn is one of those writers who lived his stories out.
3: Yeah. I was thinking at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about prophets uh, you know, I think it's Peter Brook, the uh, playwright and director, who said that, you know, there are a lot of people who are, you know, who are advertising something. And, um, you know, there are indeed sort of good artists, there are prophets, and then there are people with theories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you want to stay away from the third category. and mm-hmm. probably fit much better with the first two. He was an artist mm-hmm. who felt that he had a prophetic calling, but he also was a prophet, an artist who understood that he was also a man. And that, as you know, as his famous line goes, right, that the line between good and evil ran right down the middle of his heart too. Yeah, I, I think could could you
1: talk a little bit more about subornos because it seems like that is kind of what he was living—the sense of of wider community or what you're talking about, the, the individual acts as creating to a greater sense of of good or, or um, and this also does there there's a sense of the. The kind of pre-modern. So this is kind of bringing that back into today. Um, and maybe how does, how does Solzhenitsyn do that through his writings or how does he demonstrate that through his works or, or maybe just his life?
2: Yeah. So we've talked before, uh, David and I have about the Gulag archipelago. So Ed was able, Ed Erickson, who he done, painted the book too. Um, he was able to convince Solzhenitsyn to do an abridged version of it, right. To be more approachable to American readers, and. Uh, Solzhenitsyn really hesitated because the whole point of his book was all of the people that were there. You were supposed to feel, I mean, he couldn't get 60 million in, but he wanted a reading experience that would somehow get you to be able to understand the amount of people that died. So to abridge that, can you, I mean, can you imagine it's like if you lived through um, the bombings at, uh, in New York? And then someone is like, I'm going to write the stories of everyone who lived in that building and died or every one of the first responders. I'm just going to write all of their stories down. Like just the weight and the magnitude. And then if someone asked you to abridge that, like, who do you cut? Like what stories do you not tell? Um, and so that's what Solzhenitsyn is trying to do. And so that is living out subornos. It's It's seeing that these stories are not people off by themselves, that there's this connection between them and Solzhenitsyn, and the reason he lived versus not is why. I mean, there's a, it, it seems to him only providential. And the only way that he can respond to that gift is to use his gifts, right? um, to bring their stories before other people to, to make sure that they are not forgotten in that process. That's subornos. There's no reason he has to do that, right? There's any number of people that could have gone through that experience and gone home and been like, I'm going to drink every day of my life. Now I'm going to eat so much baklava. Like I am going to watch movies all the time. I am going to like take walks with my children. Like I'm going to do nothing for anybody else because I suffered so much. I deserve me time for the next 30 years. Right, That's not Sabornos. That's a very um, individualistic 21st century view of things. Solzhenitsyn lives out Sabornos by saying, these people became part of my story, and I'm going to make sure to share their stories so that those who inherit those stories don't repeat the sins of the past. Yeah.
3: The Gulag is, is dedicated to the, I forget what the exact number is, 237 you know, people who, who shared their stories with him. And he continued that process uh, long after, I, you know, I mentioned the, the sort of the charitable works that he was doing uh, after, you know, after he escaped the Soviet Union. But he also created, uh, I think the title was something like the All-Russian Historical Library, which, you know, makes it sound, I mean, he at least got a kind of American sense of naming thing, like All-Russian <laughs> team, you know. But they were the stories of the emigres uh, of the 20s and the people who'd experienced uh, <laughs> the revolution and things like that. He also worked to, to print up all of those things and allow those people to tell their own stories, too.
2: Yeah. if I, I just want to read the dedication because I'm glad that David brought it up. He says, I dedicate this to all those who did not live to tell it. And may they please forgive me for not having seen it all nor remembered it all for not having divined all of it. That's a that's a beautiful dedication of a book uh, that is is worth reading. You know, like like uh, you
3: know, like Catholics do at All Souls and All Saints time, um, Russians at the at the New Year have a time of remembrance of all of their beloved dead, and that was something that you know, Solzhenitsyn again was uh, was a faithful uh, faithful Orthodox Christian who would talk about this about recounting all of those who had died before and remembering them uh, with the service, the Panakita service, service with the Orthodox, and he was he was faithful to that.
2: Yeah, to be part of a community is including those who have died and those who are yet unborn. Uh, the community extends not just horizontally to those who are currently alive, but also into the past and into the future.
1: I think that's a wonderful note for us to end our recording on. Thank you so much to Dr. De- uh, Dr. Devil and Dr. Wilson for being here. Um, we'll see you next time on the wheel.
2: Uh, well, can I can I say one more oh. thing? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> we can say one thing. Yes, we would love for people to buy Solzhenitsyn in American culture. But if we can emphasize anything, it's that we hope you pick up Solzhenitsyn after you hear this conversation.
3: Yes.
1: All right. Yes, and to to plug the book one last time uh, today we we're reviewing. Um, <laughs> Souls and It's an American Culture, the Russian Soul in the West. It's available on Amazon from the uh, University of Notre Dame Press. Um, thank you for being with us.
0: Thank you. thank you. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.